0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for February 16th, 2017. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined online today by Jim Clausing. How's it going, Jim?
1: Going well. Going well.
0: All right. Glad to hear it. Also here on the couch today, we have Stan Nurulov, one of our expert malware analysts. Stan, how are you doing? Doing well, thanks, Matt. Cool. Working on anything interesting these days? I'm always uh,
2: looking at something exciting, reverse engineering new types of malware, and of course, uh, the Mirai botnet and similar kinds of IoT malware have been keeping me busy.
0: Cool. Very interesting work. Yes. I look forward to hearing more about it. My name is Matt Kaiser. Uh, our first story today will go to Jim. And Jim, this is an interesting one, a little bit of uh, Ocean's Eleven sort of slant to it. Why don't you tell us a bit about it?
1: Yeah, I uh, actually first picked it up on the Schneier Unsecurity blog, but he was referring back to a Wired article. Um, it appears that a group of Russian hackers have reverse engineered the pseudo random number generator in a particular brand of slot machines and so what this allowed them to do was send somebody into a casino to you know play the slots and by getting a sample of the you know the numbers that came up on the slots Basically, just taking pictures with their cell phones. You know, send this stuff off to uh, uh, Saint Petersburg, where they've got some computer uh, running there, who analyzed it, figured out the the seed basically for the pseudo random number generator, and then was able to send signals back to the cell phone of the person sitting at the slot machine, telling them when to hit the hit the buttons. <laughs> By sending the signal about a quarter of a second ahead of the time that they need to hit the button, that's about human reaction time. So they were able to basically beat the the slot machines. It was first detected by, in 2014, uh, some accountants at a casino in St. Louis who noticed that for a couple of days... There, a couple of slot machines had paid out a whole lot more than they should have, you know, under normal circumstances.
0: So, sorry to interrupt you, but they, they gathered the data in order to do this only from taking screenshots using their, their smartphone cameras? Or did they do research beforehand to kind of get an idea of how the, the pseudorandom number generator worked?
1: Somebody figured out the, the algorithm for their pseudorandom number generator, um, somebody in this group in Saint Petersburg figured that out. The algorithm for the pseudo-random number generator is hard-coded into the hardware, um, or, or in at least, it's in in the it's in the slot machine itself. So it it may be software, but it's difficult to to update the algorithm. So the key is by just taking some video or some pictures with their cell phones, they were able to get enough uh, data to figure out the seed for that particular slot machine. Mm -hmm. And then they could predict, you know, what the random numbers that the algorithm is going to generate in time to tell the user, okay, hit the button now, hit the button now, hit the button now. And uh, it's actually in a in a nasty way kind of an ingenious uh, thing for them to to do but it's also extremely difficult for the the companies to fix the slot machines because you know there are thousands of these slot machines or you know maybe millions I'm not sure how many slot machines are out there but the pseudo random number generator is you know, in firmware or in, the, in some software in the, in the slot machine. And to fix it, you actually have to go to each physical slot machine. It's not like slot machines are on the Internet. You wouldn't really want them to be mm-hmm. so that they could do a, you know, a, a network push to update everything. Um, so it's, it's kind of a nasty issue, and the casinos at the moment have no way to fix it.
0: So what is there? Do they have a temporary um, fix in mind or are they just shutting those machines down until they've got something better they can do?
1: I, I, I'm not sure that, that what they're doing.
2: Uh... I figure they have to rely on physical security like they always do, you know, prevent people from taking pictures and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it looks like they have a pretty good analysis team, you know. Even the accountants are good analysts over there <laughs> in the slot machine department, sure. uh, obviously, to have noticed something. Else. Well,
1: you know, the the, the accountants keep track of these kinds of things. Right. I mean, that's, you know, a casino's business is based on, you know, the the folks coming in to bet, you know, betting more or, you know, spending more, uh, dropping more in the slots than what gets paid out. I mean, that's the only way the casinos stay in business. And when, and so they have, you know, they've got a pretty good idea of, what percentage of the time a given machine ought to be paying out. And when it deviates dramatically from what they're expecting, you know, that gets people's attention.
0: Absolutely. It's interesting because on this show, we usually if we talk about pseudorandom number generators, it's usually in the context of some sort of cryptographic function. Yes. But you can show that this is a direct translation of if your random number generator is out of whack or predictable, that directly translates into money lost.
2: Yes, yeah. and it's actually one of those things that's very impressive to me, like these mathematical type of exploits where you can predict something and I guess make money out of it or mm-hmm. uh, break encryption. These are always very impressive to me because I don't even know how they work.
0: <laughs> I, you know, that's one of those things you wonder about. It. You're never gonna get a write-up out of these folks as to how they actually achieve what they did, but heck, it would be great to read. Really yeah. fascinating
2: stuff. It definitely is.
0: Yeah. All right, thanks a lot, Jim. Um, our next story, uh, I'm going to cover it. Uh, it's talking about a new bug called Ticket Bleed. Um, you've probably heard of Heartbleed if you've been watching our show. Uh, same guy found it. Filippo Valsorda posted up on his, his site, filippo.io, uh, and also did a little bit of a, uh, a write up on how he found the bug. So, this is a, a bug in a TLS stack of certain F5 load balancers. The bug is in the session ID of a session ticket in a change cipher spec request. And that is getting in the weeds a little bit, but suffice complicated it's a little sure. complicated. And the good part is there's a write-up. So, you know, if I'm not making any sense, certainly <laughs> it's going to make a lot more sense. So I apologize if I am, you know, a little bit fuzzy on the details, but what I do understand is the session ID that should be provided by the client to the server, the server is expecting it. And the server in this case being an F5 load balancer is expecting it to be 32 bytes long because that's what the spec says. It can be, I believe, up to 32 bytes. And the server is supposed to echo that back. But in this implementation, the bug is if it's not full 32 bytes, the F5 load balancer will grab extra bytes of memory next to where that session ID is supposed to be stored and echo them back. So that's why it's called ticket bleed, because it has to do with the session ticket and session ID. And it's the same sort of mechanism, you know, exposure of, of arbitrary memory on the device, you know, as the response to a request. So that's really kind of like hard was a where? lot like Heartbleed. Okay. Yep. So it's the good thing is it's limited to F5 load balancers. This is not like an open SSL bug that affects everybody because it shouldn't be quite as much as a patch catastrophe as the last time. Um, so hopefully, if you have an F5 load balancer, they've contacted you and you're working through and getting this set up. If you don't have that situation where you have that relationship with them, I think you can actually disable session tickets, and that'll have some impact on how you do TLS but it'll be secure, you won't be vulnerable to this sort of memory grabbing attack. So uh, this
2: memory grabbing attack, would it be similar to the SSL hard bug where they were able to maybe try to get the private key mm-hmm. out of memory, would that still be feasible here?
0: I imagine it would, I don't think anybody's done analysis to say exactly what is in memory that you can grab, but I imagine if you sat there all day, you could, gradually leak 31 bytes of memory because you have to send something for it to work. So you send a one-byte session ticket, you get 31 bytes. You do 31 bytes at a time over time, you can probably explore memory and find some interesting things, um, but you're going to get that little window. So still, yeah, pretty interesting.
2: Definitely. yeah, A lot can happen in 31 bytes. <laughs> we all know. I like that. <laughs>
1: it's another example of why crypto is hard. It's... The, the little things like remembering to pad out the the size of you know, the buffer um, that can really bite you. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. And again, this is not a bug in the design of the protocol. This is a bug in the implementation. No. So, right.
1: Right. Yep, exactly. Yep. That's it's it's the the protocols are hard enough to design, but then the implementations, you know, are also. You need to be very careful about your, how you implement them. Yeah.
0: Yep. All right. So, Stan, yours is the next story, and I got a real kick out of this one. This reminds me of some of the old-school hacker pranks that used to occur back in the 90s. It's a little more, it's not as malicious and a little more fun to it, I think.
2: Uh, definitely, but it's, it's definitely something that shouldn't be attempted lightly, right?
0: Right. It also reminds me of uh,
2: back when I was learning cybersecurity on my own. Mm-hmm. So, um, apparently, I think in the UK, um, this high school student uh, decided one day he was bored and was going to explore vulnerabilities, I guess, in IoT devices, and so he figured he was going to basically send a print job to 150,000 printers in the UK. So when you read the story on Vice, uh, it's actually pretty interesting because it's an interview with this person. and kind of asking them, hey, what were you thinking while you were doing this? And why did you do all of these things? Mm-hmm. But some of the pictures interspersed in there are really kind of clever. You know, he he created basically, for some reason, a lot of the printers that are connected to the internet mm-hmm. and listening on some of these ports, like 9100, I think 631 and 515, they're basically POS systems. For some reason, these POS systems, so the little like receipt printer, yep is connected to the internet. That doesn't make too much sense to me, and I'm sure it's probably inadvertent, but basically these receipts were coming out all day long with you know, pictures of little robots, with little messages that say, hey, your printer is now part of a botnet. Right. And so I can see how it was clever for this high school student, but I'm sure you know, it was frustrating to a lot of the like, business owners who didn't know what was happening.
0: To, to be fair, they weren't made part of a botnet, am I right?
2: Uh, that's correct. So even you know, when the interview took place, you know, he admitted it wasn't really part of a botnet. I think the interviewer even asked him, so why'd you say it was? And I think uh, you could see that he's a kid, he's messing around, he thinks it's funny, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's probably not something to take lightly to just go and kind of do this because of the unintended consequences. I mean, I think a lot of people took it kind of lightheartedly, but not everybody, I'm sure, you know. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you have, like, uh, in your local coffee shop, Some kind of, uh, you know, you're trying to check your customers out and you can't because these little bot messages, while funny, Mm -hmm. maybe, arguably funny, right? They're coming out and you're not able to do business. So I think for some people it wasn't as funny as it was for him. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, he was being clever. And uh, one of the things I found touching during the the interview is that, uh, you know, he mentioned that he didn't think he had an outlet for his skills. Mm With all of the things that he was doing, so he mentioned that in high school, you know, he tried to like do responsible disclosure on some bugs, and when he did that, people told him, "Well, don't go snooping around." So they didn't treat his findings in a way that kind of gave him, that I guess, an outlet him. or encouraged him in a positive way. Right. Um, whereas you know they could have taken that and probably you know made him go on the right path, they probably kind of discouraged him. And he was like, oh, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. So I think with, especially with young people or people like me, right, when I was young, I also had a lot of ideas. Hey, let me like hack away, right? But something inside me told me, hey, there's a a line here that you shouldn't cross. Mm -hmm. And I think as you're learning about cybersecurity, you need to, you either need like a mentor who's gonna help you get through that so you can understand that, hey, it's important to do these things responsibly, you know. Yes, it's good that he knows about these vulnerabilities and he wants to illuminate the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he did that. But it's possible he could have caused like outages or something more serious. So mm-hmm. there is something to be said about you know, not just going and doing things you know, like haphazardly, right. uh, kind of like he did. But it was clever, it was fun, some of the Twitter Pictures were kind of interesting to look at. Yep. People were like, wow, I'm amazed who has such skill to kind of commandeer all these printers. I'm um, getting a kick out of it. Uh, but I know I'm sure not everybody felt that way. And you know, one thing that he mentioned that he thought would have helped him uh, to channel his creativity or, or his energy was competing in like a CTF or something like that. He actually made reference to that. And I find that that's actually is the right, you know, would have been something that would have helped them. Because I know part, for me, participating in some of these things like CTFs or challenges or educational opportunities has always helped me to not only kind of like up my skills, but also learn the proper way to like take up my time so I don't do something mischievous. Ah. Uh.
0: <laughs> I know you, Stan. I'm very I'm sure you've done a few mischievous things. Uh.
1: The thing that gets me about this, though, is 150,000 printers should not have been accessible on the Internet. Absolutely. Printers have no business on the Internet. They ought to be, you know, and, you know, if you're going to offer public Wi-Fi in a, you know, in a Starbucks or whatever, then you need to make sure that your printers and your POS terminals are firewalled off from the the public Wi-Fi that that's just the part that drives me nuts here is how did we get 150,000 printers in the UK that were all accessible from the internet those are not ports that need to be accessible from the outside you you don't offer you know printing services to the universe
2: oh i agree Especially yeah. on a POS system. I think that was the most uh, shocking thing well, for me. Well, I think
0: that was part of it is that they all seem to be using the same set of protocols. Now, there were three different ports that he was scanning. Then he also mentioned he actually had uh, found a vulnerability in a certain Xerox printer web interface. He was submitting print jobs through that. So, so four different ways. Um, and it was it is kind of interesting to see in the Twitter feed the different printers and how they each handled the job. Because some of them were printing out on the little you know, receipt printer. Some of them were full page. Other ones are... They're all printing in different ways, but they're all getting the same job, which is kind of neat in my opinion. And
2: I think I discovered this when I uh, mistyped an Nmap command on my home network. Oh, yeah? And I was printing out to my printer like little banners from SMTP or HTTP, I forget what now. But yeah, when I was still learning, <laughs> that's definitely something I discovered. Mm-hmm. You
0: can simply do. Well, and I agree that these things shouldn't be on the internet. And in a sense, it's good that this is making the news because people yes. should be doing something to, to take these things off of the Internet. And it's, it's kind of silly. The other thing I found interesting is digging into this more, there's a lot of research that has been done, but not gotten a lot of press until this. Uh, and this is not the only case of someone printing to the Internet. I think we had a, there was a case maybe a year ago of someone printing anti-Semitic messages using a similar situation where these printers were attached to the Internet. And that got some press at the time, but since then it's been somewhat quiet. Uh, there's also a, a couple of instances of people printing ransomware messages using the same kind of bug. Now, again, this, this, this bug is not used to take over the device. You know, no one has actually hacked your printer. But if your printer starts printing messages saying that you know, it's been hacked and you have to give me a certain number of Bitcoin to get it back, I imagine most users would take that at face value because they're not even probably aware their printer is connected to the internet and you can just dump bytes into it and get a print job out of it.
1: Right there have been vulnerabilities in in the firmware on printers in the past mm-hmm. too you know this this particular case didn't exploit one of those but there are still a lot of printers out there that have vulnerable firmware that if you have the right exploit you can actually take over the printer and you know in the past the issue has been that you know you could conceivably get the images of previous print jobs that may have contained sensitive data mm-hmm. um, and that kind of thing. So that's that's the other piece of this that, you know, there are printers that can be hacked. In this case, he didn't do that, but that doesn't lessen the, the concern You know, to keep the printer firmware up to date, to keep them firewalled off mm. from the internet, from public you know networks obviously in an enterprise you want the printers available so that the folks at their desk can print to the nearest printer but you know you don't want those open to the, world. the entire universe
0: yeah i mean i think it of it a little bit like you know black faxing you've heard of this where people will send faxes to try and run out the ink I mean, there are certain denial of service attacks you could run on a printer just by running out the paper and the ink, or you'll start getting these sorts of messages. I remember a a previous workplace where every once in a while the fax machine would spin up and it would be some sort of spam advertisement for some company halfway across the globe, but they had found a way to bridge through VoIP and send fax messages all over the place in the hope that someone somewhere would pick it up and be interested in whatever it was they were selling. So, I mean, if this doesn't get fixed, I can imagine this same kind of situation where all of a sudden your home printer starts printing messages that aren't just some some kid playing around, but, you know, you've got some some sort of spam spam message or some sort of commercial thing that, you know, it's it's intrusive, absolutely. So, anyway, I I find this pretty interesting, and uh, it's a story to watch, I think.
2: Yes, definitely.
0: So heading on to the internet weather, uh, the top 10 most probe ports for this past week. Uh, no surprise at the top is number is port 23 TCP. It's Telnet, our old friend, 5358 is up there. And again, at number two, uh, we're going to be covering that in the internet weather, 7547, which is TR069, I believe, uh, CWMP, which is a WAN management protocol, 22 TCP, which is SSH, 1900 UDP, which is UPNP, followed by 53 UDP DNS, most likely scanning for the ability to do a reflective denial of service attack, the same for 1900 actually. 3389, which is remote desktop protocol, followed by 1911, which is the Niagara, Niagara AX. It's uh, some, it's a,
2: Trini, uh, Tritium
0: Niagara protocol. Yeah, it's a protocol for, for managing. Um,
2: Industrial control system devices.
0: Thank you, Stan. Oh, wow. <laughs> Glad I have you here. Um, TCP, which is of course uh, HTTP, and then 123UDP is NTP, most likely again for reflective denial of service uh, scanning.
1: One quick note on port 53. Um, they may also uh, be looking for That's right. That's uh, right. unpatched bind servers. There was a denial of service vulnerability that um, the internet Software Consortium patched this week. We didn't put a slide together for that or anything, but Mm -hmm. that's one other thing that they may have been looking for with UDP-53 this week.
0: That's a very good point, Jim. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, If you are running BIND in your environment, it's probably time to take a look at patching it uh, because that's a pretty significant denial-of-service bug, and nobody likes that. Um, Again, most sources probing. 23 TCP still takes the lion's share this week. 7547 is in second place, followed by 5058. Uh, Then a number of ICMP are also scattered throughout there. Uh, 80 TCP, 21, and I believe 445 as well, which is an interesting one. We don't see that one that often. Taking a closer look at some of these ports, uh, port 1911 TCP is the Niagara Fox protocol. In the last few weeks or so, we've seen um, a number of new IP addresses scanning, which appear to belong to a security research organization. So we're marking this new scanning as benign, but you can see the regular periodic increase in the number of scan flows, I would say probably on a 24-hour basis or so. So this again is for security research into an ICS building automation, so we'll see where that goes. Port 7547 TCP is CWMP or TR069, goes by a number of different names, this is a protocol used by mostly ISPs to manage their field devices, things like cable modems. Looks like this is typically an IoT botnet sort of scanning looking to, there was a a bug, I believe, in TR064, via 69 we covered on the show maybe several months ago, I'm gonna say sometime in the December timeframe, which is a very interesting bug, it's a remote um, command execution bug, uh, pretty useful for building out a botnet if you can find devices that are vulnerable um, and scanning has leveled off for the most part, uh, no longer at the, the heights that we saw back in November and December, but still something to keep a look an eye on. And you can see there's probably several different botnets doing this. You can see that the regular baseline is at a pretty high count, I'd say about 150 million scan flows, and then a couple of spikes on a, a daily basis. Taking a look at good old Port 23 Telnet. This is actually down somewhat from the the highs that we've seen in the last uh, year. You can see that back at the start, about a year ago, it was about a half to a third of where it was today. Uh, We saw some huge spikes somewhere through September, uh, October timeframe, but it seems to have gone back, but still at the top of our list. Uh, Definitely one to keep an eye out for and understanding. If you're still running Telnet in this day and age, Definitely something in your environment to take a look at, see if you can minimize the exposure on that. And the big mystery of the week and of past weeks is port 5358 TCP. Uh, this is registered as web services for devices secure. This is, the graph shows 60 days. Um, there was some activity back in around Christmas time through the start of, of January. But in the last, I would say, month or so, we've seen significant increase in this port scanning The largest number of the scan sources are in the US, lots of DVRs, embedded boxes. It doesn't necessarily mean that the vulnerability they're scanning for is in an IoT device, uh, but it seems to be something that the people who have these sorts of botnets, possibly, you know, Mirai offshoots, uh, are scanning for. So, you know, one theory is that this is a bug or an alternate port uh, for telnet, something that IoT botnets would like to build out. It's also a possibility, John Hogaboom mentioned to me, that squid proxies are running commonly on this port. So someone may be using an you know, IoT botnet to find open proxies because there's a number of valuable uses to be able to proxy your traffic through boxes that just arbitrarily allow proxying. So if anybody has any information about it, we'd love to hear your theories uh, or if you have hard evidence, even better. So that's the show for today. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T ThreatTrack on the at and Tech Channel on YouTube, and there's an audio version on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATTBusiness. Thank you, Jim, for joining us today. Thank you, Stan. I'm Matt Kaiser. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of at and or any other person or entity.